Are you ready for good talk? Of course you're ready. That's what Fridays are for. Good talk. Chantal Bear is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge. I'm in Stratford, Ontario on this day. Well, we've uh, seen weeks now of the inquiry into the uh, convoy, the convoy commission inquiry that's been going on in Ottawa. We've heard witnesses from all sides culminating on this Friday with uh, the prime minister talking. Now, here's my opening question. Chantel, why don't you handle it? Because the thing about Chantel that we all know is that she is a, uh, a person of the people. She's a journalist of the people. She loves to talk to just people, whether that's in the grocery store or on the metro or wherever it may be. That's sometimes how she gets a sense of, uh, of how the public is feeling about issues or not feeling about issues. So here's my question. In your soundings around the Montreal area over these past weeks or months, um, have there been a lot of people say, Mzebert, tell us, what is really happening at that inquiry? Or was Justin Trudeau, is Justin Trudeau going to get out of this one? Which is the kind of question they used to ask about Paul Martin during the Comrie Commission on uh, inquiry on the sponsorship uh, uh, issue. Seriously, uh, buses, trains, teachers, cross guard uh, people, uh, they, and I don't go to them and ask, and, and so what do you think? Uh, they usually come to me. Not a single person over the past two months has raised uh, this commission of inquiry or even wanted to have a chat about whether the Emergencies Act was appropriate. Uh, this is nothing scientific about it, but usually you know when an issue is becoming hot. I was, you know, the parliamentary crisis in 2008, uh, so it's not just, you know, the obvious issues. I was harangued by the person who was selling me vegetables every Saturday <laughs> over the fact that, uh, that uh, Stephen Harper didn't believe that uh, uh, Stéphane Zion should, should become the prime minister and that people who backed that scenario were all separatists. I, I, see, I still see him. Uh, an Italian man, he's telling me, me, a separatist. He's saying uh, nothing like that, nothing that even comes close, nothing. Um, Pierre Poiliev's leadership campaign, fish store, market. Um, wouldn't Jean Charest be great to beat uh, Justin Trudeau? Or what about this Poiliev guy? Radio silence on the ULO commission. I hope that the judge does not take it too personally. What is he it? is not achieving rock star status in the sense that the Justice John Gomery outside of Ottawa uh, became, at least in this province. What does that tell you, though? It tells me that um, this commission is important uh, for the process and for policy going forward. Uh, and I have heard things this week that make it, to me, even more important uh, than what I had assumed, uh, because it... It lays the foundation for the future use of a law that is really an all-powerful uh, piece of legislation. But that, and I think Bruce can confirm that based on his numbers, which are real and scientific. I think the public came to a decision as to whether it was appropriate to do what the federal government did back last winter, and that they, he, she, uh, all have not heard anything that has made them inclined to revisit their opinion that the federal government was probably right to do this. All right. Well, let's ask Bruce, what, uh, what is your sense of the public's interest in this story and in this inquiry? Well, you know, um, when I first started doing television interviews and panels and that sort of thing on uh, on politics goes back a number of years, even before I started doing the ad issue panel with you. I used to worry a little bit that I was going to be the world's worst panelist. Um, and maybe maybe I am. Some people probably think I am. But the reason I used to worry about that is that all of the years of polling 
that I had done before I started doing those interviews taught me that not everything that's important becomes the subject of public attention and not everything that is a matter of great public attention is important. And a lot of interviewers didn't want to hear that. They just wanted to hear, I want to know how transfixed and, uh, and uh, how people are reacting to whatever it is that I need to ask you about. And I would be like, well, nobody's paying any attention to that. I think Evan and Solomon in particular used to find that really unhelpful. And uh, our relationship survived that happily. But the uh, I agree with Chantel that the, this is important, this process. And it's uh, I think it's being conducted in a reasonable way. There's obviously always going to be situations where we can look at it and say it could be improved, but uh, an important process. I don't think it's attracting a lot of public attention. I think political enthusiasts, I, I sometimes I say nerds or junkies, and I don't like either of those words really, but let's call ourselves political enthusiasts. We're paying a lot of attention because this subject matter is of interest to us. I think for the public, though, uh, people pay attention to things that uh, are either uniquely salacious or hugely important and, and and relate to their lives in some kind of dramatic way where they can feel like if this goes badly, it will affect me badly. And if it goes well, I'll be better off. And this doesn't really um, meet that test for most people. And that's probably a good thing because it means that we live in a country where the use and the and the apparent need to use measures like this really doesn't happen very often. I think for most people, last thing I would say is that the uh, journalism is doing what it should do in this situation, which is sort of trying to draw a bead on the technical or legal question at the heart of did the government have the necessary argument that passes the test established by the words in their law to use this? I don't think that's the test that the public uses. I think the test that the public uses is, was this an act of tyranny? Was it an act that was uh, embraced by the government without thinking through the consequences because they just loved the idea of it? Um, is this a precedent that we should look at and say, it's going to happen all the time now because the government was able to do it and get away with it and the, and the, the hearing process didn't derail that? And I think the answer that most people come to on those questions is no, um, that the government um, didn't really want to use it and that uh, the process of the inquiry, uh, it's a forensic uh, examination that no government will really want to go through in the future, even if they come out of it the other end without any political scarring. All right. Uh, just yeah. a... Uh, a couple of, of things on this. Uh, one of the reasons I believe that uh, it is also not generating the kind of, of public attention or public reaction that some other issues are is that there has been no, um, it, the House of Commons has not acted as a, a communicating vessel for what happens at the commission. Remember Gomery, something would be said on the stand in the morning. It would be the bread and butter of question period in the afternoon with the government forever under attack. In this case, it is as if the opposition parties live on a planet very distant from the across the street inquiry. And that starts with the official opposition. None of, no testimony has resonated in the political arena. There are good reasons for that. The NDP not only did support this move, but uh, has also stated via its leader that Regardless of the conclusion, they will not withdraw their support to the government on the basis of this report. Uh, I think the Bloc Québécois understands that there is um, majority support. Some of Bruce's own numbers back from back at the end of October show that Quebec is the province where there is the most support for having used the act, considering the history of 1970 and the War Measures Act. That is uh, quite something. And I think the Conservatives know that a, they're divided on it, and B, they can only lose points over it. So, but but the absence of that resonance and, and partisan way in the House of Commons also leads to people looking at the news reports and saying, oh, okay, uh, uh, let's move on. You're not going to get people really, really excited over the fact that the Minister of Justice has invoked fine solicitor privilege to not give some of the legal um advice that he and the government received 
although that is interesting and it's a big piece in the puzzle that Justice Rouleau is handling, uh, no one is going to be demonstrating over this uh, tomorrow uh, in any Canadian city. Can I just add, uh, I, I, I love Chantal's point about the lack of a kind of a resonant echo chamber for, you know, that the opposition, in particular the Conservatives, would be lighting up. There's There's another way to look at that is to say that if the Conservatives felt that they had been on the right side of the convoy issue back in February, and if they continued to feel that and felt even more empowered in that position as a result of the testimony, the convoy lawyer and participants would be having dinner at Stornoway this week. Um, the Mr. and Mrs. Polyev would be making a show of the fact that they were with the patriots who challenged the tyranny, who stood down uh, the face of tyranny in Justin Trudeau. Uh, there's nothing even close to that happening. This is this whole space has been vacated like there's some sort of uh, biohazard uh, by conservatives uh, around it. And that has to tell us something about whether they think they're on the right. They have been on the right side of this or whether they simply don't want to be drawn into further association with the uh, with the manifestation uh, of the convoy. Uh, So I do think that's important. And I think that the. The other thing that Chantel touched on is the provision of legal advice to the government. And this question uh, sort of felt like some stakeholders were saying this is an aha moment that we're not getting to see the legal advice that the government got from the Justice Department um, or through the Justice Department, I guess, in some instances might be the case. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think that Chantel's right that people aren't going to be transfixed by that or be particularly perturbed by the sense that not seeing that advice doesn't give them the transparency that they're looking for. I come at it more from the standpoint of um, any of us who've looked at uh, legal advice in situations of any sort of similar nature can understand that the advice is going to be ambivalent. it's going to say if this then that or if you look at this this way if you turn it on its side you might come to this conclusion and i can understand why for any number of reasons government isn't kind of feeling like they want to share all of that so that people don't then sort of bend it out of proportion i certainly feel as though the government's willing uh, from what it's done to take the hit for not revealing that uh, that advice, and to uh, and I expect that the prime minister will say, uh, whatever the combination of inputs from law enforcement, from the RCMP police commissioner, from CSIS, from the Justice Department, in the end, it's a political decision to do it. I took the political decision to do it, and I'm being held responsible for it, and I'm okay with that. All right, and I think me, most people will agree. Okay, let me uh, let me that let that's me, an okay thing to do. Let me try to focus this down a little bit here. Um, first of all, as Chantel had mentioned, that how Quebec had this overwhelming support for uh, for the actions that the federal government took. Uh, it's worth noting, because that was from your data, Bruce, that all of, in every province there was a majority support, more support yes. than uh, than against in terms of the government, which is interesting. They, you know, including in the West. Um, now, to focus down on, on, on one part here, and I, I hate doing this, and I know you hate me when I when I do ask it this way. The strong word. I yes. don't think so. I don't think I can hate you, but I'm bracing for it, whatever okay. it is. Well, here's, here's the question. Um, throughout these uh, this inquiry, through the weeks of testimony from all sides, if there was one question that you were looking to hear answered, what was it, and did you get an answer for it? So it's a, sort of the one area that you were most interested and and you hadn't formed in your own mind what the answer was already, and you wanted to hear it from someone. Uh, what was that question, and did you hear an answer? Um, Chantel? I don't think I approached it like that, uh, and I think the questions that I still have are questions that Justice Hulu will answer. Uh, and, and I do have one that I had not been thinking about until this week, but watching um, the government's arguments this week, because this was what the week was about, but also uh, deputy, the Deputy Minister of Finance, Michael Sabia, last week, um, 
I kind of understood that the government is trying to convince Justice Rulo that the definition of a threat to national security should be broadened uh, to include uh, economic interests. Uh, and I have a quote here from Christopher Freeland, which I think says it quite spells it out quite clearly. She said, a very, a very serious threat to Canada's economic security can constitute a threat to national security. Such a threat would need to be very grave, and in this instance, it was. That seems to me an invitation to open the door that for now and the law is closed. Uh, and closed, there are two arguments on this. Some will argue that's because when the law was crafted, circumstances were different, and it is time to review the language to broaden the definition of a threat to national security. But the other uh, perspective, which I tend to share is that there is a slippery slope there, uh, that it is in the eye of the beholder how serious a threat to Canada's economy uh, and, and national security, quote unquote, uh, is constituted by, for instance, uh, indigenous railroad blockades uh, and environmental protests that shuts down pipelines or a pipeline project. Uh, and I am curious to see what if anything, Justice Rouleau will do about this because it opens doors that some of the very people who are opening it this week might believe or should stay shut. I'm going to say this very bluntly. Uh, listening to Christian Freeland, I felt like asking her, would you be comfortable with the broadening of a definition that would give Pierre Poilievre more power and more capacity to use this law? Uh, because... I understand why the government is going there, but it's, it is a slippery slope. And for people who have forgotten, one, this law is a nuclear weapon in the government's uh, toolbox. Two, and the, the, the notion that the public, and I'm not optimistic like Bruce, that this will not open the door to this being used again. I tend to be of the other persuasion. And why I say that? In 1970, civil liberties were clearly breached to the face of the world. People were jailed for no reason. This time, public opinion, as we've noted, is massively behind the government. I don't believe it will shift against the government, no matter what the conclusions of the exercise. What is the message there? That it doesn't really matter uh, that you're not living up to the terms of the law because the public will back you. And at the end of the day, that is what the government seeks. So imagine that we have rail blockades and it's used for that reason and the broaden in the, in the circumstances that Christian Freeland articulated, not just her, but others. Um, do you seriously believe a majority of Canadians are gonna say that's wrong rather than say about time to do something about this? I'm just asking and I, I will see that answer, I believe, only when I see the report. All right. Bruce, your one question and whether or not it was answered. Well, I am gonna I am gonna want to talk a little bit about what Chantal just said, of which I agreed with roughly ninety percent this week on that point. Um I think the question that um that I wanted to see the answer to it wasn't really something I was terribly perplexed with, but it sort of in the focus of, uh, of the public debate was what to make of the situation where the public safety minister had said on advice from police, I think is what he said. This is, you know, the, that precipitated our decision. And, and a lot of uh, critics uh, and observers have said well, he didn't exactly get that advice from the police. And so was he lying when he said that? Was he trying to misrepresent the kind of advice that he was getting? Um, I think it's possible that the specific construct of that sentence uh, wasn't everything that he would do if he were saying it again. But I also think that over the course of the evidence provided, it was pretty clear that um, the cumulative effect of hearing what different police forces or people were saying and what the CSIS director was saying certainly would lead you to the conclusion that the police were saying we're, we don't have the tools or the plans or the wherewithal to get this done. And the CSIS director said things that might have sounded like 
I'm not sure what the legal definition um, means in part because it hasn't been tested and whether or not it stands up to um, the use of the act in this case, but I think you should use the act. So I think there was an answer to that question. Um, and I don't feel that the effort by that minister was to mislead people, but rather to say the cumulative effect of the information he was getting led to something. But which brings me to the whole question of we're talking about the use of something called the Emergencies Act. And I sort of my one of my takeaways, I guess, is if there was something that wasn't called the Emergencies Act and didn't have um, uh, all of the attenuated trappings associated with the definition of uh, national security crisis, but something called a very serious problem for which the existing tools don't work act, then that would be the act that people would want to have in politics to use in this situation. Uh, but we don't have that. Uh, we have something called the Emergencies Act that was written with language intended to define something as being pretty darn serious and for which there is no other alternative course of action. And so we're having a good debate about it. And the part that, that I was really intrigued by that Chantel brought up is I was uh, there, you know, 50 years ago uh, when uh, rights were uh, abrogated. I saw uh, tanks and armored uh, military vehicles come into the the kind of the outskirts of the town of Valleyfield where I was living at the time. Um, and I believe that it's a slope, but I don't know that I believe that it's that slippery. Um, and maybe that's just my natural optimism. Maybe it's me saying, well, if it was 50 years ago um, and it hasn't happened again since then, uh, maybe that's a reason for optimism. But I'm also aware of the fact that we don't have the guardrails in society that we used to. The fact that we were talking at the beginning of this conversation about people aren't really transfixed by this is part of that. The, what we watched with Donald Trump is part of the realization or should be that what we thought were barriers to governments doing really uh, unexpected and inappropriate things. Those barriers don't they're not as strong as they used to be. So um Maybe maybe it can be a slippery slope going forward, in which case all the more reason why we should be happy that we have this kind of forensic process as, as imperfect as it may be. It's still pretty good. OK, I got to take a break. But Chantel, did you want to say something in there? Uh, no, I think it covers pretty much okay. uh, where I am about the slippery slope. Well, it's not hard to see it, but you've got, uh, and I'm sorry for people who watch this, I have a nosebleed, <laughs> which is why I'm doing this. Um, <laughs> you have a, a conservative party that when we did have those indigenous rail blockades, wanted to send the police to clear them uh, and pushed on the government to do that. You have a government that is arguing in front of a commission that one of the criteria for using this act and being able to command serious police uh, powers, extraordinary ones, is the economic interest of Canada, which can be something that you define depending on situations. Uh, and if you put the two together, you kind of can see a bit of a slippery slope with uh, no public opinion really standing firm in the way. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and um, maybe uh, Chantel will be able to... Uh stem the flow there from her uh, for bleeding nose and uh, i i've got another question on on, on the convoy and uh, it's about strategy and the strategy used by one of the uh, participants but we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll deal with that Welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk for this Friday on The Bridge. You're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Or, because it's Friday, like Wednesday, you can also see it on our uh, YouTube channel. You can find the link, and it's free to subscribe uh, at my bio on either Twitter or Instagram. All right, getting back to the uh, uh, the convoy questions, and uh, and here's my question here. The because every possible side, I think, in this um, uh, issue of what happened in, earlier this year in Ottawa and Coots, Alberta, and the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor and elsewhere, 
because every possible side had the opportunity to uh, submit uh, testimony to challenge some of the witnesses. Um, there was, you know, were decisions made by these uh, different entities. One of them was the protesters, and you you've got to assume that the protesters were given a incredible opportunity to make their case uh, before the commission and the Canadian people, and to ask questions of everybody right up to the prime minister. Now. A question is about the strategy the protesters used, mainly through the lawyer they hired, uh, who at times has seemed somewhat, well, I don't know, he seemed somewhat unhinged, even chased somebody down the hallway yesterday, claiming they were the person who had been carrying the Nazi flag and he wanted them on the, on the, uh, you know, in the uh, witness chair. As it turned out, this person had nothing to do with that. It's not the first time this week he's made charges and he's uh, about various people. And as a result, he's facing a libel notice, I believe, on that. Um, but it, it, his performance seems at times, seemed to me at times, to be a wasted opportunity that the protesters had. They had the chair, they had the spotlight, they had the camera. They could have made or tried to make a convincing argument uh, with some of the witnesses and challenging. Was that a, an opportunity lost, or am I overstating what I was witnessing? Bruce, you start. Um, you know, I think that the observation I have of the, the, the different lawyers and how they've been participating is... Um, um, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. I think there are some participants who are asking questions that I think are, you know, pertinent and interesting and kind of explore uh, questions that will have a lingering value in terms of how we learn about the use of this act and the choices that were made in it. And then there are others who are doing rather kind of performative or defensive things. They're, they're trying to establish a political argument or, um, to make a point about whether they were uh, uh, as culpable for whatever was going on and it was going badly, that sort of thing. In the case of the convoy, um, it, you know, it's almost surprising that there is a lawyer representing the convoy. I mean, there should be somebody representing the interests of the people who whose um, uh, rights were imperiled. Uh, but I don't know. Um, if most of that energy should really reside with the convoy people, the convoy, um, as we've heard, it had multiple leaders, multiple agendas. Um, uh, not everybody was there with a view to insurrection and not everybody was there with a potential for violence. Um, but, you know, I don't know when I'm listening to the convoy lawyer, whether I'm listening to somebody who's trying to represent people who, um, whether he was just trying to represent people who were coming with a legitimate kind of sense of, uh, of frustration with COVID or whether he was coming representing people who didn't understand that the vaccine mandate that affected truckers going into the United States was a U.S. law, not a Canadian uh, situation or whether he's trying to represent people who have a political agenda and don't like this government. That's obviously a big part of the flavoring of what the convoy was about. Um, and, um, and when I'm trying to kind of follow the, you know, the Perry Mason esque uh, kind of approach of, of the convoy lawyer, I'm left a little bit confounded, to be honest. I don't think it's very well thought through or structured. And I find that the tone is, more indicative of somebody who's who's in a protest rather than in a, a tribunal hearing. And uh, and so it's a little bit annoying for me to watch, but I'm glad that, that we live in a country where it happens. Um, Raymond Burr would be upset with your Perry Mason analogy on that. But that's okay. It's a, it's a very dated analogy, and probably most of the people that we hope will be listening uh, down the road anyway <laughs> will have no idea what I'm talking about. Otherwise, you're condemning yourself for a very short term future. Uh, <laughs> a lot of these shows come back, though. Let's be honest. There's remakes. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, well, I hope they're remade because I know I think the previous uh, the, the, the the original installments would have survived the test of time very well, and that dates me too since I can remember those shows. Um, first, I think Justice Rouleau was right to uh, give the convoy the representation that it sought. I, I think it. Uh, the best way to do away with conspiracy theories about people being under a tent conspiring against you is to be invited in the tent uh, and then uh, being told, well, do your best, or in this case, do your worst. I think it's also obvious that uh, the, 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 the representation or the lawyer in question does not have a very deep knowledge of governance and, and governments, uh, and that that... Uh, has been obvious in some of the questioning. But um, I think that certainly, uh, when you talk about lost opportunities, I think one of the things that uh, the style of representation has accomplished has been a gift to the government and to the opposite side, because it has provided a quasi-daily um, illustration of why even if there had been negotiations between the government and the convoy organizers to try to end this, it would almost certainly have ended in failure. That there was not common ground based on facts or reality. Uh, and when I say this, I talk about, for instance, the, the faction that believed that the governor general uh, and others could get together to overturn the government and, and try Justin Trudeau for treason. Well, to have a, a discussion or a negotiation, you need to start from the same reality. Uh, and what we have seen is that that was not the case on just about anything uh, that came up uh, over the past two months, including the fact that if you'd been walking in that place yesterday, Peter, you might have been asked by that lawyer whether you wanted to testify because you have some of the physical attributes of the person that he thinks he's looking for. But that tells you a lot about where all this is going when, when the lawyer will run after anyone who has a mustache uh, and is of that age to say, do you want to testify? I can arrange it. Oh, there might be an age gap there. I don't know about that, uh, but I want to go back to Still, that. But, the, but the way, the way this, this scene unfolded, it kind of uh, says, so yes, it was a lost opportunity, but not for the commission, uh, for the convoy people. Exactly. Um, just before we leave it, uh, there was actually a remake of the Perry Mason show. There was, and it wasn't very good. I don't think there, either. It wasn't very yeah. good, even though it yeah. had some good actors in it. It it wasn't uh, it wasn't very good. And can of, I just add something? I know you want to. We're going to move on in a minute, but uh, I I did think, and I was what Chantal was saying made me think about this. I was watching the testimony by three people from the Prime Minister's office uh, yesterday. Uh, Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. John Broadhead, the policy director, and um, Brian Clough, who's also a very senior person in the office. And, um, you know, it was a reminder that, um, you know, I, I, these are obviously people who work in political jobs, and, and there are lots of critics of political staffers, but these are very professional people. And, um, and we've seen Kate Telford in uh, in a situation where she's being questioned as part of a hearing before, I think it was the the Wee scandal. I hate to call it the Wee scandal because I don't actually think it was a scandal, but I know that you're going to get a lot of letters, Peter, and you're going to ask me why do I provoke people that way. But anyway, the Wee conversation, and I remember thinking when she did testify in that context, she was very effective. She's very well prepared. She's very well spoken. Um, she doesn't get rattled. Uh, and yesterday with the convoy lawyer, I was kind of reminded of, um, of you know, just how professional uh, that response by the PMO was. Now, it remains to be seen what the prime minister does today. But, well, folks can look at this text and that text and say, well, they were being political. And, you know, the truth is they're there because they have a political antenna. They're there to help ministers and the prime minister kind of accomplish their agenda, but they're essentially going to be political analysts to some degree. And it shouldn't be forgotten in the mix that during the convoy, 
the amount of pressure on the government to stop and end the convoy was like this, and the amount of pressure not to was really low. Um, and now, of course, the situation is sort of, it's not reversed in the sense that, but all of the focus is on should they have done that? Whereas back, uh, and I think Minister Freeland was referring to, to some of this as well, in the moment, it wasn't that the government was just sitting there and the public was kind of ambivalent about it. There were a lot of people who were uh, more directly affected, perhaps, than in other parts of the country, in Ottawa and on, the, on some of the border crossings, but they wanted action. There were a lot of economic players that wanted action. And that pressure was felt. And it wasn't, therefore, just a political calculation uh, of how many votes will we get if we invoke the Emergencies Act. It was, what do people expect us to do? How how bad, how significant, how mounting is that pressure? And so I was interested in that, in that ex- exchange, but I didn't think that the convoy lawyer handled it in a very enlightening way. Let me, um, let me just... Okay, go ahead, Chantal. Because I suspect you may be about to change topics. <laughs> I am. I, I, want, I have I, one I, more I, question. but I, uh, Okay, but I want to just mention two things that are unrelated to, to the convoy lawyer or, or the PMO staffers. But it's more to, to the exercise in general. Uh, I have to say that uh, this inquiry has convinced me of two things. One, it would be useful to have the same kind of exercise regarding the management of the pandemic, not to put a government on trial, but to give all the players a chance to explain their perspective and figure out what we learned from the experience rather than have a government leave. And one day something like this will visit us again and whatever they will have left in those boxes will all that will be left. I think the Canadian public would benefit from having a discussion outside the partisan frame of a parliamentary committee uh, about the pandemic in general, the decisions that were taken, what went well, what went wrong. The other thing is, and I suspect Justice Hulu and his, his crew will dislike this intensely, I believe we should, going forward, always have public inquiries um, in work under an imposed hard and fast, not extendable deadline so that they get on with the job and then do not get to, and you've seen some of those inquiries that were so extended that they ended up being closed down so that they can't forever go to the government and get so many extensions, which sometimes pleases the government of today, that they become irrelevant. Uh, And yeah, I understand that the holiday season is not going to be great for Justice Hulu and for the people who work for the inquiry because they have to report by mid-February. But I think that is the way that you keep the issue fresh, topical and relevant. And so far, he's been running a tight ship. You know, he's moved those along. There haven't been any delays of any consequence that I've witnessed, which was pretty impressive. Um, On your point, it's funny because I remember in the first week, I think it was Bruce first made the point about how remarkable this was because we were actually seeing documentation and we were seeing notes. We were seeing stuff that uh, usually takes 20 years before we see it coming out of, um, you know, in some cases, cabinet discussions and clearly uh, senior uh, meetings of, of, of different sorts. Um, but I remember asking at the time, do you think it will be used elsewhere? And I think the response that I got from both of you and including you, Chantel, was that, no, this ain't going to happen anywhere else. Because, you know, I I agree with you. It would be nice to see a, a rational look at, at COVID and how, how the whole thing played out. But do, have you changed your mind at all about the possibility that something like that could happen? <laughs> Not necessarily, <laughs> just because I think, like you, that it would be, Uh, Good. And I thought, for instance, that this week the government put on uh, a decent show uh, that that, that overall they came across more as a reassuring presence than as as a disjointed uh, set of players, uh, despite the discomfort at having some of their internal texts brought forward. Uh, and yes, when you write them, you don't expect to have them shown to you and to the public. But I think that discomfort means that by and large, the, 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 there will not be a lot of political will for having these kinds of exercises on uh, other fronts, such as yeah. the pandemic. 
No, or, I think that's right. But yeah. I also <laughs> think that the, you know, what's interesting about the text is, uh, you know, it's kind of human nature to be interested in other people's private communication. Um, but if we step back from, from that, and I'm not critical of that, I just think that is human nature and, and I, you know, have a measure of it myself, but, um, if you were there thinking that the revelation of these private pieces of communication was going to show that you were right in saying that this government is made up of tyrants who couldn't wait to use this tool to crush resistance. Um, I don't think there was any collection of clips or quotes or text messages that sort of laddered up to that. That doesn't mean that they all look good under the, uh, under this kind of sunshine, uh, but it doesn't feel like the tyranny was exposed by um, the revelations that we saw in those uh, exchanges. Of course, some of them were blacked out, right? <laughs> or parts, yes, there you part, go. Parts, of, parts of them and were that's, blacked out. You know what? So let's and get I, that they conspiracy did that because <laughs> they have the Bill Gates chip inside them, the people who were <laughs> doing the redactions. And, they were, and, like, and the chip told them right. that they needed to redact. Yeah, so me, one day he's going to end up on social media with just that sentence. Yeah. And he will regret ever saying it. That's right. There you go. Even, we'll mark that yeah. down. 41 minutes, yes. 10 seconds into this conversation. Bruce said All that. right, let's stop the tape and go back and let's redo it. <laughs> the, I'll, I'll just tell you one quick story before we move on. Um, and I, I know that some of you like to hear these stories, but it's a CBC story. And things can get pretty paranoid inside the CBC at times. I don't know what it's like there now. I've been gone six years. I can't account for anything there now. Um, but I can remember having been a person in a senior position at one particular crazy point in terms of the, the CBC story and the way people were investigating this, that, and the other thing about the CBC. Um, <laughs> I remember being uh, being in the office of, of one of my fellow senior players who looked at me and said, Jesus, Mansbridge, don't write anything down. You want to say something? Come in here and talk to me about it. <laughs> don't write it down. Um, that was because, of course, everything is out there and can be uh, called upon to be produced. Anyway, if it wasn't, it wasn't anything nefarious. It was... Pretty simple, actually, but nevertheless. If I, if I can add, my dad was a, a, a supervisor in Toronto when I started in this business. And one of the few pieces of advice he ever gave me was don't write anything down. <laughs> and there was no social media. The year is 1976. <laughs> but And I have kept that advice. He said, if you have something nasty that you feel you must say, don't write it. <laughs> Say it. It's a little hard, though, to tell a journalist, don't write anything down. <laughs> yeah, well, but he meant yeah, no, these things never go away, right? Yeah. So uh, I write emails sometimes to respond to people, and then I look at them and I say, do you really need to do this? And I trash them and don't send them. Right. Well, that's why. I've the, noticed that your emails uh, uh, <laughs> are usually quite short. Uh, yes. and I know that that's that training. <laughs> but it, yes. uh, it also explains the uh, the emergence over these last couple of years of, of uh, you know, the systems like uh, Signal and uh, WhatsApp, WhatsApp and other things like that that don't seem to be uh, suddenly appearing in, in, in terms of various commissions. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of those ministers or players or prime ministers or anybody would use anything like that, but... Who knows? Um, okay, we're, we're almost out of time for the day. That's been a, a, a fascinating conversation. <laughs> Let's put it at that. Uh, and uh, take our final break and come right back. Here we go. And we're back for our final segment uh, on Good Talk for this uh, Friday's edition of the Bridge. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching on our YouTube channel. Uh, okay. Uh, I could go in either direction, but given the fact we only got about five minutes left, I'm going to go in this direction. Uh, the world is watching the World Cup. Um, you know, it, it is the beautiful game. It is 
uh, what people in every corner of the world, in every different kind of country, um, and every different level of class are watching if they're able the World Cup. They're watching soccer. But this year it's coming. The World Cup is coming from Qatar or Qatar, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, and that in itself has caused a degree of controversy. Um, some countries are using their opportunity in Doha or one of the other uh, communities in uh, Qatar that is um, hosting the games uh, to use their moment on television to show their uh, dissatisfaction with any number of different things, including the kind of uh, uh, government uh, that exists uh, in Qatar. Um, Canada has been, for the most part, silent about this, uh, and so has its players. I'm not sure whether you depend on players to, to, to carry the flag on something like this if you're going to protest. Um, but the, the government hasn't said anything, and I'm wondering whether either of you have uh, strong feelings one way or the other about what Canada Shooter could be doing uh, in this triumphant moment for Canada in terms of actually getting back to the World Cup and playing extremely well in their first game the other day against Belgium. Um, but beyond that, Bruce, you got anything to say on this? Yeah, in my mind, I'm trying really hard to separate the role of the game and the players from the politics of FIFA and Qatar and uh, and to respect the fact that this event only comes along every once in a while and that it is a showcase of a sport and the talents of these players that many, many, many people around the world look forward to and want to enjoy and that um, and that they should be able to enjoy it without the surrounding politics isn't um, a question of whether they lack the moral fiber to protest what's going on in Qatar. It's a function of the fact that the leadership of FIFA, the organizing entity, is horrible. Um, the speech that the president of FIFA made the other day was one of the most shockingly inept and um, objectionable uh, speeches that I could ever imagine a leader of an organization that puts on an event of this scale could do deliberately. Like if he had been drunk at a dinner table somewhere and said these things, you might go, people say really ridiculous things when they're drunk. But he said this at a press conference. I have very strong feelings. Today, I feel Qatari. I feel Arab. I feel African. I feel gay. I feel disabled. I feel like a migrant worker. He talked about being at school bullied because he had red hair and freckled and because he was Italian and didn't speak good German. His um, it, it defies belief that an organization with this much money and time and effort to put into planning this kind of event could have done such a horrific job of it. And that's even before you get to, they signed on Budweiser among many sponsors, a major beer producer that has shipped over all kinds of beer, put up tents. And then a couple of days before, um, it was announced that there wasn't going to be any beer sales at this uh, event. It's so shockingly poorly thought through and organized. The only conclusion that people can come to is that the people running this organization uh, were blinded by the money involved and um, inconsiderate uh, about even the most basic decisions about how to run it and, and, and more than inconsiderate when it comes to the, uh, the human rights and other social issues that are raised. Two minutes, Chantal. So uh, I agree with Bruce on, on FIFA. Uh, obviously, couldn't care less about human rights, be it that of the workers who, who were used uh, literally as slaves to put this together, or LGBTQ communities across the world. Uh, we're now seeing a country try to use the uh, World Cup as a showcase for itself. The good news is that didn't work. It backfired badly. If you didn't know anything about Qatar two weeks ago, what you know now is not something that is positive uh, for that country. It's the opposite. As for the Canadian government, I note that uh, 
There was a unanimous motion passed in the House of Commons this week, so the Liberals voted for it, basically, uh, to denounce the approach to LGBTQ rights and, and to people who want to express support as part of, of attending the, the games in person. I'm not sure I understand why we sent the minister there. It, it, it looks like an odd call, and I do not believe that Minister Sajan really advanced the cause of human rights, as he says he did, by having discussions with Qatari authorities, the same authorities that uh, basically issue fiats over the selling of beer overnight. Are not, we're not waiting for a Canadian minister to come and show them uh, the error of their ways on human rights. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have some sympathy for uh, the way, well, well, both you said, but uh, from what Bruce said at the beginning, it's hard to separate the sport from the controversy. You know, I mean, the controversy is happening because of the sport, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, Canadians want to rally behind these uh, these players who are representing this country for the you know, first time and only the second time in the in the World Cup. One of the other egregious things, Peter, I know you you you'd probably kind of have a particular reaction to this. You're a very strong sports fan, and including you like the Leafs. Which is a mystery, but the you have thirty, you have 30 that, seconds to make this that point. FIFA would cross what for me was another line among the many, not the most egregious, but still very strange that they would say to a player, if you wear a particular symbol, that we are going to penalize you in the context of the game. Yeah. Um, I just find that just so shocking uh, in a day and age where these events depend on the support of hugely um, global corporations who they have to know cannot go along with that uh, or can't ever put themselves in that situation again, at least. It's really shocking um, the things that FIFA has allowed itself to be drawn into doing on behalf of its Qatari hosts. All right. Going to have to wrap it up at that point. Uh, great conversation today. I, I appreciate your patience. We didn't get to all the topics we wanted to get to, but uh, I think we gave what we did have to uh, talk about. Chantal and I are going to stay on the line and talk about the other ones after. You sure. Know. Well, you go ahead and do that. Actually, you know, Chantal wanted to run out on some of the other ones. Well, <laughs> we, we will get to them at some point. Thank you both, Chantel, Bruce. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Or no, we'll talk to you again on Monday is when we'll talk to you.